You are about to listen to Finding the Real You, Part 6 of The Lost Art of Teshuvah. All of the schmoozin' as well as many series that deal with real-life issues are available on theschmooze.com or on the Schmooze app, available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol HaLashon, 718-906-6461. Dovinah Melech was charged with the greatest mission of his life. He was given the single greatest Messiah that he was ever to face. And because he asked for it, he was given a type of Messiah that would have been literally like an Akedah Yitzchak, and he failed. In front of Am Ve'eda, the entire Jewish nation understood that the Melech Yisrael lived with what was then an Ashes Ish, and for the rest of his life, he suffered tremendous, tremendous embarrassment, sorrow, agony. You read the words of Tachanun, my bed is soaked with tears, I can't stop my groans. And the Gemara tells us at a certain point, David turns to Kadesh Baruch and he says, Ribbon Shalom, you know that if they would rip my flesh, my blood would not pour out. Meaning he was so white, so aghast, so embarrassed that whatever that means, his blood would not have flown. But it wasn't just his own personal embarrassment. Velo owed when I'd walk into the base Medrash, and the Talmidi Chachamim were involved in halachas. And they were discussing the halachas of Dalad Mises Beisdin. And they would say, David, what's the halacha? What type of Misa are you chayev for living with an Ashes Ish? Mocking the Melech Yisrael. And David said, when he heard those words, he said to them, a man who lives with a married woman is chayev chenek, choking. That's a type of misa he gets. V'yesh lo chelek but he has a portion in the world to come. However, hamal bin pnei if one embarrasses his friend in public, ain lo chelek And what David Melech was saying was, you guys are such kanakas, you think you're going to make fun of me. I have a portion in the world to come, you guys don't. Okay, and that's the Gemara. And I'd like to ask an obvious question on this Gemara. Dover Melech, I understand. He's challenged with a type of Messiah that I don't think we can imagine. If you'd like to understand the test, and listen to Shemuz number 42, Shemuz number 43, if you can imagine being pulled by an electromagnetic force that's so powerful and so just irresistible, he could have won this Messiah, but it would have been the equivalent of climbing Mount Everest barefoot. So I understand why he failed. That's Dovid Melch failed in the same. But what I don't understand is these Tamil Chachamim. When a Melech Yisrael walks into the room, if you don't stand up, you hide Misa. If you argue with the king, you're put to death summarily. If you walk into the king's throne room and you don't bow down full face to the floor, you're a Morid B'Malchus and you've lost your lease on life. What were these men thinking? They were embarrassing a Melech Yisrael publicly one of the greatest men who ever lived, and they were in their haughtiness, standing up to say, huh, what's the halacha one lives in an Ashish? Well, what, what type of Misa? Mocking a man in public. So David, I understand, but what were these men thinking? What was going on in their mind? What were they thinking? Why were they doing this? And I believe the answer to this question really is based on fundamentally understanding us. And to share with you what I mean, Around Yom Kippur time every year, I find a very interesting phenomenon. 
as I begin thinking and getting ready for Yom Kippur, I go through the Cheshbon, okay, what are the areas that I have to work on? What are the areas of my Chatoim? What are my sins? What have I failed in this year? And I always find it very interesting that I have to sort of like dredge up and sort of ask, okay, so let me think about it. What did I mess up in? What areas have I failed in? What are my, uh, where are my Chatoim? And it never fails to amaze me that I have to actually dig in and sort of like, oh yeah, I guess I do have some Averas. Now here's the observation. Assuming that you are not the Chavetz Chaim, assuming that you're not Rebbe Kriyager, assuming that you're not the Chassam Sofer, then I guarantee you have loads and loads and loads of things that you do wrong. And if you're not sure that I'm right, open the Chayodom in a simon by right before Yom Kippur, when he goes through lists and lists and lists. And again, unless your name is up there amongst the greats of the greats, I guarantee you have boatloads, trainloads of things that you do wrong. And yet the question is, why is it that it's so common to have to sort of like, hmm, where, what are my sins? What, 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 what do I have to work on? And I'd like to share with you that there are two reasons why it's very difficult for us to see what we do wrong. Two reasons why it's very difficult for us to see our errors. Reason number one is what I call madrega-based. It's based on the fact that I, the neshama, am put into this body. And when I'm put into this body, this body serves as a very, very thick coat and doesn't allow me to feel things that I normally should feel. As an example of this, I remember very clearly, first year base medrash, Yom Kippur time, it was a very, very serious time. And all of my chevra, you could see the dominating was tremendous. But as I sort of looked up the rank, second, third year base medrash guys, it wasn't just it was serious, they were bent over, you saw guys crying. By the time you got to the younger Kola guys, open tears, almost wailing. By the time you got to the older Kola guys, it was real wailing, guys with tissue boxes, etc. By the time you got to Rebbeim, it was, it was getting a little uncomfortable. And you have to excuse my expression, the worst of the worst was my Rebbe, the Roshiva Zetzal, openly, every schmooze, I remember clearly, he would break down openly, couldn't stop crying. I remember regularly, by Neila, he would begin crying, and public couldn't stop. Here's the kasha. Isn't that an inverse? Meaning, the higher up you go, obviously, the less you have to do tshuva for. Right? Meaning, the higher up you go, the more you've worked on yourself, the less issues you have, the more mitzvahs you have. So why is it that it's always the inverse? That the more a person is up the ladder in Ruchnius, the holier they are, invariably, Yom Kippur is a much more serious day, they're crying a lot more, they have a lot more apparently, that they're doing tshuva for. So again, the answer is that this is the first reason why it's difficult for us to feel our averas, because ruchnius works in a very interesting way. That as I become holier, I'm far more sensitive to what my actions accomplish, and therefore far more sensitive to what I didn't do. Meaning to say, the reason why the Chavetz Chaim took any single word of Lashon Hara so seriously was because he understood the gravity. He understood what a human being can accomplish. He understood what a human being should do. And therefore, when he didn't do what he was supposed to, he understood with a tremendous sense of clarity what it was that he did wrong. And therefore, he felt a tremendous amount of charata. So that's the first reason why it's difficult for us to see our errors. Because we're deadened, we're in this body, it's very thick, very hard to see. But there's a second reason why it's difficult for us to see our errors that has nothing to do with that at all. And I'll share with you a classic example. Ask any from fellow the following question. What's worse, eating a McDonald's cheeseburger or speaking Lashon Hara? Right? What's, any of us, come on. 
I mean, listen, I'm not saying Lashonara is mutter, but it's not treif. I mean, McDonald's is treif. You can't eat that. That's mamish osa. Any well-educated shiva going to tell you McDonald's is far worse because it's treif and Lashonara is whatever. Okay. The only problem is that that's completely, utterly wrong. At most, you'll tell me a cheeseburger. I'm not sure if it's basa b'chol, depending on how it's cooked. You'll probably get one love. Chavetz Chaim counts for us. 17 losa says, 14 assays when you speak Lashon Hara. Now he explains that even though it's true that no single story are you likely to get all of them, but I guarantee that any single story that you'll tell of Lashon Hara, five, six, at least ten different losa says and assays. But it's worse than that. A cheeseburger, a big, thick cheeseburger, at most says three kazesim. So if it's a lav, you're going to get three lavim at most. Every word of Lashon Hara is a discrete Avera. Each word of Lashon Hara has those five or ten Averas included in it. In one little story, hundreds and hundreds of Los Asseis and Asseis. If you'd like to know in the scale of things, there is no comparison whatsoever. Because a cheeseburger is, again, it's a lav, it's horrible Avera, but it's not even in the same planet, not in the same constellation as Lashon Hara hundreds and hundreds times worse. So, here's the problem. Why is it that even after you learn the halachas, even after you study it, even after you've said a shmooze about how big an Avera Lashonar is, it's never as usser as a cheeseburger. And never reaches that like, I mean, cheeseburgers forbid it, mamish usser, and Lashonar never gets there. And the question is, why is that? Why don't I get it? I learned the halachas, I went through it, I get it, I understand it, so obviously it should be far worse. And the reason why it never becomes as bad as a cheeseburger has to do with the essence of me, the essence of a human being. And to understand this, let's focus on something very, very profound. One of the greatest chedushim that Rabbi Yisrael Salanta shares with us is that I am the neshama. That the neshama is not some distant part, some alter ego, some sort of scaled-down version of me. That the I who thinks, the I who, the I who inside telling my arms and legs to move, when my body's put in the ground, I separate and I stand in front of the basin shamala. But again, it's not some splinted-down version of me. It's not like I'm asleep and my neshama goes up to Ganadin. It's me with all of my cognitions, all of my thoughts. The same I who I'm thinking right now. Stand in front of Beis Neshama, the body's put in the ground, I separate, and for eternity, I am what I shape myself into. Okay. Now here's the problem. If you go to a funeral, you may notice that they put the body in the ground. The body includes the heart, the lungs, and the brain. Now I've never gone to an autopsy, but it's my sincere belief that they don't take the brain out and kind of like FedEx it up to Shemaim, right? I mean, the brain is buried with the body. So what do you mean I separate? What do you mean I stand in front of the Beis Neshmala? <laughs> My brain is there in the box, dead, right down there. What do you mean I, if I'm not the brain, what am I? How could I think without the brain? How, how could I be there without my brain? And this illustrates a very significant point. And that is that I am not the brain. And if you'd fundamentally like to understand who I am, who you are, you have to sort of very carefully pay attention to human thought. And let me give you a couple of examples. Imagine you have a woman who's preparing supper. 
She's deciding it's the morning, and she's deciding supper for that evening. Hmm, let me see. <clears throat> chicken or meatloaf? Chicken or meatloaf? Oh, chicken or meatloaf? I like chicken. I really would like to make, but my husband like meat, my, likes, likes meatloaf. Well, I like chicken, but my husband likes meatloaf. Oh, hmm, hmm, what should I do? Chicken, meatloaf, chicken, meatloaf. <gasps> cholesterol. Cholesterol. It's bad for his cholesterol. He's going to get heart disease. I'm not doing it. Uh-uh. Chicken it's going to be. And she puts the chicken into the oven. Now, if she would stop right then, and you were to ask her, Madam, do you know what cholesterol is? Do you know how plaque forms in a heart? Do you even know whether your heart, husband's cholesterol is high? She would not be able to tell you. And if you'd ask her, do you really believe that the reason you're putting chicken in the oven and not meatloaf is because of cholesterol? No. But it's enough for her to sort of buy into, and she puts the chicken in the oven, cooks the chicken, fine and well. Okay. That evening, her husband comes home, and she serves a delicious chicken. And they're eating dinner, and she turns to her husband and says, So? Do you, do you like the chicken? Yes, dear, it's very good. You didn't say that with much enthusiasm. No, no, dear, it's really, really good. No, I, I can see you, you really didn't mean that. No, no, dear, I mean it's really good. I could see you really didn't mean it. You really didn't say it with much No, dear, it's really good. You did Listen, dear, I'm not saying, listen, you know I prefer meatloaf, but for chicken, it's good. You see that? It's not, it's not enough that I do for you, I sacrifice for you. I didn't make, I did, I didn't make meatloaf because it's bad for you, and you don't even appreciate it? And she gets upset and they have a big fight. And, uh, okay. Now, obviously, that's ridiculous, right? And obviously, that never would happen, right? Except it happens every day of the week, twice on Sunday. We call it rationalizing, you know, just buying into an excuse enough to believe it and then being embarrassed that you're caught in that sort of lie and thinking your husband doesn't appreciate it. Okay. But these things that we call rationalizing or rational lies are something that we engage in all day, every day. But I want to point out one very interesting thing. We don't lie to ourselves. It's not like I say, gee, I want to do this. Let me figure out a rationale, an excuse, a logic to make it okay. Uh Uh-uh. The minute I want it, my brain conjures up just instantly, pops up with something, comes up with 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 a logic, with a thought, with a reason. My brain instantly spits out logics as if it has a mind of its own. And it's very strange to watch the human mind. I deal with a lot of people, a lot of issues. I deal with quite a number of people who have OCD. And OCD is a very, it's a very debilitating disease. I'll give you an example. Obsessive compulsive disorder. Basically what happens like this. It's really called the nervous uh, disease or the downing disease. Imagine the following. A fellow locks the front door, goes up to his bedroom, and on the way up says, hmm, did I lock the front door? So he comes back down and checks the front door. Lock, yeah, good. <clears throat> so he goes back up to his bedroom and, wait, did I lock the front door? Goes back down and checks another time. Yeah, it's locked. Good. Okay, goes back to his bedroom. And again, maybe I didn't lock it. No, come on, I lie. I know I didn't. But maybe I didn't. So he goes back down and checks a third time. Okay, by the 30th time, he knows that the front door is locked. But he's not comfortable with it. And there's a doubt in his mind. And he doesn't feel that it's locked. And at that moment, he has a choice to make. He either gives in to what his brain is going to spell out to him and suffer the rest of his life, or he breaks free. And what I've told guys on a regular basis is you have to say to yourself, and to say to your brain, I will not give in to your twisted thinking. 
I will not give in to your perverted version of things. And you have to go to bed. But, but, but maybe it's not luck. That's fine. But maybe burglars, I don't care. But how do you know it's, I don't know. So what, I'm going to bed anyway. I'm not giving in to your twisted thinking. And it's rather strange, because what do you mean, I'm not giving in to your twisted thinking. But that is exactly the disease state. And it's twisted thinking, and if a person doesn't learn to just ignore it, he's a slave for the rest of his life. And the solution is very simple, to train yourself to ignore it. But it's interesting because it's not just people with debilitating issues that have this problem. Have you ever gotten angry? I've gotten angry, and I found a very interesting thing when I got angry. It's not just that my heart starts pounding, not just that I see red, not just that you can tell that I'm in a totally different state. I view the world differently. You become a louse. You become a worthless creep. When I'm furious, it's not just I feel differently, I think differently. And suddenly I interpret entire scenarios in a completely different way. I interpret things in a totally different manner. And my brain now begins spewing out things. A guy like that, it's mother to speak Lashon about more than that, you should probably punch him. A guy like that deserves to be, but probably the biggest mitzvah. And if you pay attention, your brain is going to spoo forth things that are clearly illogical. How do you know that they're illogical? Because the next morning when you wake up and you're calm, why did I say that? How did I do that? How, how could I have said that to my, my spouse or my child? What was wrong? With, what was I thinking? What happened was you were emotionally hijacked. And your anger took control of your brain, and your brain began spooling forth logics. If you'd like to fundamentally understand your relationship to your brain, I have a simple muscle. Imagine you have a family with five school-age kids, and the minog there is after supper, everyone does homework. So you all eat supper, and uh, it's time now for homework. There's only one problem, one family computer. Five kids, one computer. Well, I have social studies. Well, I have a, a report. I have math. I have the... Five kids are clamoring for that one computer. Now, depending on which child sits down to the keyboard will determine what's shown on the screen. Different programs will come up. Different letters will be typed out. Which child controls the input determines what's shown on the screen. If you'd like to fundamentally understand yourself, that is us. I have many different components to me. Within me is anger. Within me is jealousy. Within me is desire. There are many different things that are fighting for control. Whichever one gets control of that computer is going to control the input. And guess what? No matter which part is controlling the input, I have to watch that screen. So if it's anger, on that screen comes up all the logics that are spewed forth by anger controlling my brain. If it's jealousy, all of a sudden that guy's not worth it, and why should he have it, I should have it, and he stole it from me. And if you'd like to fundamentally understand yourself, that's exactly what happens. By the way, if you've ever worked on Hirhurim, watch a guy when he's working on Hirhurim, and he says to himself, I'm not thinking about those images anymore. And suddenly in the middle of nowhere, an image comes into his brain. Get out of here! I don't, I don't want to think about it. I don't want you here. Get out of here! No, what do you mean? I don't want to think about you. Who's I? Who's you? Like, what, what is he? Like, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, were the two of them in there? The answer is desire took over. Desire is there, and desire took over the brain, and now the brain is going to be the servant of whoever took over. 
Right now, if desire is in charge, the brain is going to serve it, and it's going to put out there images that he doesn't want to see. And when you begin studying the way we think and the way our brain acts, what you see is, on a regular basis, there are different forces, different parts of me that are taking control, and there are constantly different elements of me that are typing into the keyboard. However, there's one more step that's critical. You ever hear the expression, the devil made him do it? The devil made him do it, right? The devil never made you do anything. Your desire, your jealousy, whatever media might have brought up something into the image, but then you had a choice. You could have ran from it, or you could have fought it, or you could have caved. But if, in fact, you do X, it wasn't because the devil made you do it, The devil brought up the image. Initially, you didn't want it, but then you started desiring it. And then you decided, I will do it. I want it. And once you made that decision, a very interesting thing happens. Your brain goes into warp speed. It starts spooling out. Oh, you want it? At your command, master, I will provide the logic. Because the minute you want it, your brain is going to spoo out logic at the speed of sound to offer why it's permitted and it's good and it's right and it's proper because your brain is a loyal servant. It serves whichever desire is strongest. And once you decide I'm doing it, your brain will serve it well. If you'd like to understand why it is that I never do anything wrong, it's because once I decide to do it, my brain is my servant and my brain makes it permitted. My brain presents a logic, a rationale, a reason why it's absolutely fine. And when I come to Yom Kippur and I got to look for my Averas, there's nothing that I do that's wrong. Because once I made that decision to do it, my brain says it's good, it's fine, it's okay, and there's nothing wrong with it. Because my brain is my servant. And if you'd like to understand why these people were so critical of Dov and Melech Yisrael, it was really very simple. They marched on beautiful white steeds. They wore beautiful long white robes. They were tzaddikim in the court of their own mind. And a tzaddik like me, pure like the driven snow, to see a man abhorrent to live in an ish's ish, so disgusting, I can't even look at you filth. And as strange as it sounds, they embarrassed one of the greatest men who ever lived. It's Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, Moshe Aaron David, number six, number seven, depending how you count. These men weren't within miles and miles and miles of the ankles of David and Melech. But in the courtroom of their mind, they were pure as the driven snow. Great Sadiqim, who never sinned, looking at a sinner, a filthy, vile sinner. And they were so disgusted that they felt it was appropriate to embarrass him in public, risking their own life and potentially risking their Olam Haba. And when you see this, what you see is an illustration of the power of the human mind. You see, when Hashem created us, Hashem did a very good job. And this thing called Bechira, this thing called free will, is not as simple as it sounds, and it's not as simple as you may think it is, but to allow for actual Bechira, Hashem gave us the capacity to believe whatever we want, to have our minds spoo out logics to make it okay, because now my neshama can't stop me. You see, if my brain were really straight, 
and I saw things with absolute clarity, how could I sin? I get it. Every sin damages me for eternity. Every mitzvah helps me to grow. I wouldn't have Bechira. Why? Because obviously I would do what's good and right and proper, but not because I chose so, but because effectively I had no choice. And this concept that I am not the brain, I'm the guy inside, I think through the brain, I relate to the world through the brain, I interpret facts through the brain, but I am not the brain is one of the most critical concepts that a person can come to. Number one, it's the most liberating thought you probably could ever have. Why? Because no longer am I bonded to what I am now. Let's assume I'm angry or lustful or jealous or petty. That doesn't mean I have to remain there. If I could learn to control my thinking, if I could learn to control the thoughts that flash through my brain, I can change the essence of me. And I'm not deemed forever to be what I am now, because once I can learn to control the thoughts, and I can learn to control me, and I can become a vastly different person. So on that level, it's a very redeeming, very wonderful thought. There's also another wonderful aspect to this. The fact is that I can stand in front of my Creator, on Yom Kippur, and I could say the words, Hashem, I did not choose this generation. I did not choose to be born with this temperament. I did not choose jealousy or anger or lust or whatever it is. And I could admit the fact that I'm blemished, I'm flawed, and I could live with it. You see, I didn't choose this. I was put into this body. Each person's body has a different level of anger or jealousy or whatever the mix of medias are. And I was put into here, and I can stand in front of my Creator and say, Hashem, you put me into this. My job, I got it. My job is to grow, to accomplish, to grow beyond it. But I did not choose this. And once you're able to say that, you're able to admit to the fact that I am flawed, I am blemished, I have real problems. Maybe I have a temper, maybe I have a wandering eye, maybe I'm jealous, maybe I'm into my honor. But I could stand in front of my Creator and admit that I have these flaws because I recognize I didn't choose this, I didn't make this, I have to deal with it, but I'm not the Creator of it. And that's the good news. It's wonderfully liberating, and it's wonderfully comfortable to be able to admit you're flawed. However, there's one part to this concept that's not so comfortable, and it's uh, what I call the bad news. The bad news to this sort of realization that I am not the brain is that you begin to understand yourself on a fundamentally different level. And I'll share with you something profound. The Masil Sharm gives a muscle that's very, very hard to explain. He says, if you'd like to understand a man who doesn't make a cheshman nefesh, let's say you have a guy, he's learning, he's down, he's doing everything, but he doesn't regularly analyze his actions. He doesn't regularly sort of look at what's good, what's wrong, what's right, what's proper, and then compare himself to that. If he doesn't do this step, Mr. Hashem says, let me give you a mushal. Imagine a blind man walking on the river's bank. Hudson River, right? A guy who's completely blind, sort of walking on the Hudson River bank and... What are the odds of him successfully making it to tomorrow's chakras? The answer is a sure ain't large at all. A blind man walking on the river, that's a muscle to a man who doesn't regularly sit down, analyze his actions, ask himself, how am I doing compared to where I should be? Isn't that difficult to understand? <laughs> blind man next to the river is going to fall into the river. He's going to die. I get that. I'm a good guy. I'm learning. I'm dominating. Growing. So I don't do this thing called I don't 
analyze myself. I don't create these lists and, you know, what's good, what's right, what's proper, and, and then ask, how am I doing compared to those? So I'm like a blind man. I'm going to die. I'm going to definitely end up, you know, failing. It doesn't make sense, right? Okay. So, folks, let me bring you into a world that we often um, don't really experience. If you've ever gone to a AA meeting, any of the 12-step meetings, you'll find maybe one of the most humbling, one of the most powerful, life-changing step is what they call the first step. I've only been to one 12-step meeting in my life. It actually was a 6.30 a.m. meeting, Shabbos morning. I was speaking in an out-of-town, staying by a man who, over Shabbos Friday night, the meal, he was telling me that he's a 30-year member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He had been in the Navy, he became a Balchuva, and he was an alcoholic. And for 30 years, he's been straight, and he goes to a meeting, he goes to meetings regularly. <clears throat> One of these meetings he goes to is 6.30 every Shabbos morning. So I said, I want to come with you. Now, folks, I've read the big book, the AA book. I have four copies at home. I've read through it. I read the original version. I'm pretty familiar with the program, and I'm extremely impressed with the 12-step program. But it happens to be I never was at a meeting. 6.30 in the morning, I'm wearing my suit and tie, my yarmulke, and I see 200 people. 200 people. 6.30 on a Saturday morning. They're all wearing their jeans and whatever, but they're all there. And this is the step, the first step, the first step that any person who wants to regain sobriety has to say is, my life is not manageable, and I am powerless over it. I'm powerless over alcohol. I'm powerless over narcotics. I'm powerless to change it. And that's the first step. And it becomes the biggest sticking point, because many, many people can't get past that. Saying the words, my life is not manageable, and I am powerless, and then turning my life over to my higher power, what we call God. And that is the first step, and that's the most critical step that any addict will make. Now, many people don't make it. Addicts who are able to go through a 12-step program generally are able to succeed. But here's the point. If you are watching 200 people say the words, my life is unmanageable and I'm powerless to change, I guarantee that you and I and everyone else will look at them and say, Nebuch, look at that guy, Mom, no control, a weakling. Mom is like a, what kind of human being is no control? No control? And you and I would feel very, very different than that person. You and I would know that Nebuch is unfortunate, weakling, sort of like a, uh, I don't know, uh, I'd say a loser, but Different than you and I. And here's the thought, though. If you look at addicts, addicts come in all sizes and shapes, all different forms. They're brilliant addicts and they're dumb addicts, highly successful ones and not so successful ones, young and old, short and tall, fat and skinny. In fact, the only thing that you'll find addicts have in common is that they're addicted to something. But even stranger, I recently began working with Guard Your Eyes. We came out, there's the, the fight... It's a, it's a 12-part uh, series that I, that I produced on Taiva, on, on Desire, and I collaborated with Guard Your Eyes. We printed 15,000 copies, and as a project together, we put it out across uh, the country. We have some copies here if someone wants. Um, it's also on the Shoes app and the Shoes site. Um, and I began working a little bit more with Guard Your Eyes, and I began 
taping things to them and discussing things, and I found out something even stranger. All of these people go through a 12-step program, but they're much like you and I, regular from guys from regular from homes. They look like you, they look like me, they talk like us, but they're powerless, and they're, they're like, I feel bad for these nebuch weaklings, like they're powerless. Your life is unmanageable, and you're powerless, and it makes no sense. And, and you have to admit, it's very strange, isn't it? And I'd like to share with you the difference between us and an addict. Would you like to know the one difference? The addict is forced to deal with reality. You see, when an alcoholic wakes up in the morning and says, I know that if I take another drink, I likely will die, and I can't not take another drink, he's desperate. He realizes that he's powerless, and he's run out of room to lie. He's run out of room to make excuses. There's nowhere to go. So he has to admit the fact that I'm powerless. You know what you and I do? (laughs) Oh, we've got creative excuses. Would you like to know what we do? It's a Dubna Magid's muscle. The Dubna Magid explains that a man was once riding on the country road, passing a farm, and he stops his horse. Why? Because he sees this large barn, and on the barn are ten bullseyes, and dead center in the middle of each bullseye is one arrow. Every single arrow right in the bullseye. And he says, I don't believe it. This guy is the best archer I've ever seen. Ten perfect bullseyes. i got to meet this guy. He stops the horse, gets out, looks at a farmer, and he finds the guy. And he says, I, don't, I, I looked at your barn. I saw ten targets, ten dead bullseyes. I don't get it. How did you do it? And the guy says to him, how did I do it? Everyone does it backwards. What does everybody do? Everybody, you know, first they draw the target. Then they shoot. Sometimes they hit. Sometimes they don't. Not me. First, I shoot the arrows. Then, once the arrow lands, I draw the target right around it. Every time, it's a perfect bullseye. We both say, that's us. My behavior is excused by my brain. And what I do, whatever I do, there is that ever-loyal servant to make it good, to make it right, to make me that knight in shining armor, and my brain serves up the logic that's needed. Until a person gets desperate, until a person finds that if I take another drink, I'll die, and I can't not take another drink, and then he gets it, then he realizes that he's powerless. The difference between an addict and us is the addict is forced to deal with reality. We got plenty of wiggle room. We got plenty of room to just excuse it, and I don't really care, and I'm so into it, and it doesn't really bother me. And if you're not sure that I'm right, I'll give you a simple challenge. All the Rishonim agree, no one argues in Achronim, everyone agrees it's a full Losa say to look at a woman with desire, with lust. Try this one on me, walk down Fifth Avenue, and don't look. Try for 30 days not to look. Uh, you're good at that one? How about Lashon Hara? Uh, try for 30 days not to speak a single word of Lashon Hara. Try me, try that. And by the way, folks, I'll share with you one of those sort of like little annoying points of my life. Unfortunately, on a regular basis, I get couples that come in, and uh, problems vary, but oftentimes a problem that surfaces is, Rabbi, how could I respect them? How could I, how, how could I respect them? They found out that he watches, he's been watching pornography. Granted, he went to guard your eyes. Granted, he's working on it, but how could I... How could I respect him? He's such a hypocrite. He learns, he davens, and that schmutz is what he looks. I, I, I can. I, he's working. I get it. But how could? How could I? How could I respect him? 
So what would you say? What would you say to a woman who came to you with that uh, question? And she's sincere. She really wants to continue respecting her husband, but she can't. So I'm a little bit nicer than this, but the answer that I say basically is, Madam, with all due respect, have you ever noticed that women dress in a manner that's really not nice? Um, I, I mean, fine beishako of women who went to the base schools and et cetera, and they're wearing the you know the sleeves down to here and the and the, the dresses down to there, but it's so abhorrent, so tight, so disgusting, so like, ugh, why are you doing that? Why do you do that? And by the way, the only thing that's humorous is that when a woman turns forty or forty-five and she's no longer so attractive, then she gets on this bandwagon, sneers, sneers, my daughter has to be sneers, and this one has to be no one sneers enough, right? And when she was twenty, twenty-five, thirty, she wasn't exactly on that bandwagon. So so what happened? Why is it that finely educated women who get it, they understand what life's about, why do they dress this way? And would you like to know the answer? It's really quite simple. I mean, I mean, come on, everybody does it. You want me to dress like weird? You want me to be like a, like a bag lady? Well, I, come on, it's like, I can't do that. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You can't do that, I see. But let's say you had to. Let's say Hashem said to. Let's say Elion Lovey came down and said, call Mar Hashem. It's not nice the way you're dressing. What would happen? <laughs> oh, I see. Uh-huh. But that's not good enough, right? Let's deal with something else. Let's deal with something called Lashon Hara. Madam, you ever speak Lashon Hara? Nah, not me. Oh, no, never, right? Yeah, right. You ever speak to your friends? Yeah, so, okay, good. Now, let's assume you speak to friends more than once a year. I guarantee, I guarantee you're over countless others on an ongoing regular, I guarantee it. Why doesn't that bother you? How are you able to sleep at night? How are you, how are you able to live with yourself? The answer is there are cheeseburgers, things I don't do. But then there's Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara is not like usser. It's not like forbidden. It's not like, a, not like a love in the Torah or anything, right? Wrong. It's multiple loves. Every single word. Hundreds within one speech. When you call your girlfriend or you call your sister and you can't tell your honey, you can't tell you're you blowing it. The Orisa. Hundreds and hundreds of times. I know you can't look at your husband do big, big Avera. Madam, with all due respect, you're doing a lot worse. A lot more often. Come on, I mean, it's not like pornography, pornography is us, the Lashon Hara is, uh, you know, it's just, uh, oh, I see, okay. So if you get to write Shulchan Aruch, we'll pay attention to your Shulchan Aruch. But the Beis Yosef is long dead, and the job wasn't given to you. And folks, this understand again, I'm much nicer than that, believe me, I don't do that, believe me, but, but, but that is the point. The point is that we are very, very good at judging others, and we're very kind to ourselves. My brain will make everything that I do good and permitted and fine and wonderful. And when you read a Chazal like this, where Talmud Chachamim embarrassed the king of Israel, the Melech Yisrael, the Mashiach of Hashem, one of the greatest human beings ever lived, and they looked at him like a nobody, and they looked at themselves as if they were tzaddikim, what you're seeing is an illustration of this power of the brain. You see, this first concept that we have to get straight is, I am not the brain. And when the brain brings thoughts to me, I have to always question them. And I have to always ask, who's got control of that monitor? If it's my anger, that screen is going to show what it shows. If it's my jealousy, that screen is going to show what it shows. But the brain becomes a loyal servant. And much like that family computer, it depends which kid is inputting on the keyboard, determines what's going to show on the screen. But regardless, I have to watch that screen. I have to watch that screen 
and I have to see it, and here's the difficult part. It sounds like me. Do you know the hardest part? When you walked up the 30th time up the stairs, and the voice inside says, maybe the front door is not locked. To actually say, I'm not listening, listening to your twisted thinking is so difficult. Why? Because it's me who's saying it, isn't it? It's, it's my brain. I mean, if I can't trust my brain, who can I trust? And learning not to trust your brain. Learning that I'm not the brain. Learning that my brain is oftentimes hijacked, whether it's by anger or jealousy or desire. And learning that I am not the brain is one of the keys to recognizing who I really am. And most people don't have a clue. Because most people, when they have that thought in their brain, say, well, that's me, and I'm doing it, and they think it's them. And they walk down that garden path, and exactly what the Masilla Sharm says, like a blind man on the river's bank. Why? Because it doesn't matter if you're learning, and you're davening, and you're doing everything right. If you don't have checks and balances, I guarantee your brain is going to corrupt you. Your brain is going to present logics and thought processes by, by which everything you want to do will become mutter, and you are like the blind man on the riverbank. That's exactly what Mr. Sharm says. Because whether we recognize it or not, we are all powerless. And my friends, that is the most disconcerting, sounding, most almost debilitating thought you could ever have. I'm powerless. I'm powerless. Until you hear the next step. I'm powerless and I hand over my case to my creator. I stand in front of Hashem and I say, Hashem, you created me. You made me. Please help me. Please aid me. I don't want to be doing these things. I don't want to be involved in this. I'm powerless to change. I recognize that. I'm not hopeless. I'm not helpless. But I can't win this. Because it's not just that I desire it. My brain keeps telling me it's good and it's fine. And I keep getting, please help. And exactly what Mr. Sharm says, when you say those words to Hashem, Hashem helps, and then you're saved. And unfortunately, most people only find this out if they become addicted. I've had too many, too many, too many conversations with fellows who end up in 12-step programs. Here's a classic. A guy, um, a guy ends up addicted to whatever it is, and uh, I didn't speak to him for a while, and then he calls up, and I say, how's, uh, how's things going? He says, well, religiously terribly, but spiritually great. I said, what do you mean, religiously terrible, but, but spiritually great? What, what does that mean? He said, well, you know, religiously, you know, tefillin and davening, I'm not doing anything, but, but spiritually, in terms of seeing Hashem right there every day, I mean, it, it's never been better. Folks, listen to what I'm saying to you. This fellow was educated in the best yeshivas, and he never understood that God is part of the religion. The Ramban explains that the matara, the focal point of every mitzvah, is to know Hashem, to recognize Hashem. And this guy was doing all the mitzvahs and never recognized that Hashem is part of the equation. But this first step, recognizing that I'm not riding on that white horse. I'm not wearing beautiful begotten that are white and pure. I feel that way because my brain has become hijacked. And because of that, it creates a worldview that's very clean and wonderful. But recognizing that I am powerless and saying to my Creator, Hashem, I didn't choose this. I didn't ask for this. I can't win this. Please help me, is the first step to real growth. And I want to close with one last observation. If you wake up in the morning and don't feel that you're failing in at least one area of life, then I believe you're failing at life. If you wake up in the morning 
and don't feel that there's at least one or two or maybe even three areas of life that you're really messing up in, that you're really not doing well at all in, then I guarantee you're failing at life. Why? Because it means you don't have a clue to your potential, you don't have a clue to what you become, you're not holding yourself to standards, you're not demanding of yourself, you're allowing yourself to become hijacked and whatever. I'm good at this and this, I'm a great father and a husband and, and responsible and learning and davening and midos. Oh, my midos perfect. <laughs> Ask anybody. And anybody who argue that just had, that's a creep and a bummer. People who really know me know I'm a great tzaddi. Uh-huh. If you wake up in the morning and don't feel that there's at least one area of your life that you're failing in, you're failing at life because you don't understand life. You're not setting real goals. You're not demanding of yourself. And the most humbling and most real and most gratifying recognition is when you recognize that I am flawed. I am flawed, but I can change. You see, once I recognize that I'm flawed, but I can change, then I can begin for real growing. You see, if I'm perfect, me, I'm perfect, everything, perfect midos, perfect learning, perfect guy, I am the perfect man, I'm done, I'm toast, I can't change, I can't grow, there's nothing to improve. The minute I'm man enough to wake up to realize that I'm not perfect, I have very real flaws, blemishes, shortcomings, there are issues that I really got to work on. There are things that I really messed up in, not little, big deal. Big deal, big time, messing up. When I'm able to be man enough to admit that to myself, then I'm able to actually grow. Then I'm able to actually turn to my Creator and say, Hashem, I didn't choose this generation, I didn't choose this set of personality traits, I'm powerless to change, please help me. And then I could do the difficult work, I can do the real steps of changing, of growing. Yom Kippur is one of the most beautiful days in the Jewish holiday. It's certainly the day when you can most clearly see Hashem, surely the day where you can most clearly, probably speak to Hashem. But more than anything, it's a day that I can finally be honest with myself. I can finally take off the veils of lies and sheker and false having to put on a show for this guy and that guy and show everyone how great I am. I'm not great, I get it. I'm flawed, I'm blemished. I'm prepared to recognize what I've done wrong. And I'm prepared to recognize that I'm not going to be capable of really changing it until I turn to my Creator and I say, Hashem, I can't do it, I need your help. And when I do that, then I can really grow. And that is the most liberating thought, the most powerful thought. It allows a person to really grow, really accomplish, to really reach a simcha of, of real growth and really being davik to Hashem. May Hashem grant us the wisdom, the fortitude, the strength to put this into practice. I want to thank again Ellie Krieger for sponsoring the Shmuz. Um, I also want to just mention we have a number of CDs in the back. One is The Fight. Um, it's a 12-part, 12-shurim uh, on, on the issue of Taiva. Um, don't go on the internet. If you do, go to the Shmuz.com. Don't get a smartphone. If you do, get the smart, get the um, Shmuz app for iPhone and Android. Uh, on it, on the series section, you'll see The, the Fight. But if you hopefully don't have a smartphone and don't go on the internet, you have the CDs. I wish you much asalcha, a good good show. You've been listening to Finding the Real You, Part 6 of The Lost Art of Teshuvah. This, as well as hundreds of other Shmooze audio, video, and articles are available on the Shmooze.com or on the Shmooze app, available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com. 
or by phone at Kol Halashon, 718-906-6461.